Good morning. As you all know, I'm Clark Irvin. Delighted to be with you here on this spring-like morning in January. We're very pleased to welcome, as this morning speaker, Chris Costa, who is the executive director of the International Spy Museum. Colonel Costa comes to the museum from a very long and distinguished career as an intelligence professional. He served most recently, we were just talking about it, as the special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism and hostage affairs on the National Security Council. Among other things, over his long career, he worked as a human intelligence practitioner with U.S. Special Operations Forces in a number of theaters in Bosnia, in Iraq, and in Afghanistan. In recognition of his service, he was inducted just a few years back, 2013, in the U.S. Special Operations Command's Commando Hall of Honor for extraordinary and enduring service to Special Operations Forces. He holds a BA degree from Norwich University, an MA in Strategic Intelligence from the American Military University, and an MA in National Security and Strategic Studies from the Naval War College. His military awards include the Defense Superior Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, and not one, but two Bronze Stars. And I should mention also that um, the Colonel is joined by his lovely wife, Donna, with whom I've had the pleasure of speaking briefly this morning. So with that, please join me in welcoming Colonel Costa. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for the warm introduction, Clark. And, and this place is special, this church, to Donna and I, because Every day that I served at the White House, virtually seven days a week, my wife and I lived a few blocks away from here in a tiny, tiny little place. And she walked me to work and she waited for me sometimes into the early morning hours of the next day. She would come over, walk past the church, and this was a touchstone for us because it's lighted beautifully and we would cross the park and it was here. And uh, it brings back memories, although there's light, so I wasn't <laughs> used to that. So again, good morning. I, I am the executive director of the International Spy Museum, and I'm really excited when I have an opportunity to talk not just about the museum, but maybe I can connect the audience here to a few stories, and, and you'll drive those stories by the questions you ask me. You can ask any questions, and to the extent possible, I'll try to answer those, which was very challenging for me when I left the White House. I, it really was, on multiple levels, right? Um, so the Spy Museum, just a little bit about the building and a little history for the building. We have been around for 16 or 17 years, the Spy Museum. It was also a different kind of touchstone for me. My son, I took him there on a special day from the country out in Warrington. We came in on his birthday and he got a chance to go to the Spy Museum. And he was so animated by what he saw that he wanted to follow his dad's footsteps to some extent. And um, he is now serving in the FBI as a special agent. So, you know, the torch got passed along, but he was animated and excited by the spy museum as a little boy. So you might remember the space on F Street. Does everybody remember that? Just a show of hands, who's been to the old spy museum? Excellent. Wow. So I'm among a friendly audience, right? How many people here have gone to the new museum in Lundfont Plaza? Thank you. So you correct me if I'm wrong when I'm done, but I'm going to share some, some perspectives of the new museum. So it's about two times bigger in physical space. Our mission, and I want to reinforce that, 
although the Spy Museum on F Street was fun and there's a lot of James Bond, the new museum is fun, but it's a little bit more serious. And yet kids are equally as thrilled now as they were with when my son went through F Street years ago. But our mission, to be clear, is to educate the public. And you may or may not know this, but we were a for-profit museum, and our founder is an elderly Jewish American that served in the National Security Agency in the 1950s. And he said, I'm going to put a spy museum here in DC. And everyone he talked to said, you're going to fail. Now, Mr. Maltz is still around more than anyone knows, not as much as me, because he was here this week. And he has his hands and fingerprints all over that museum, as he should. It's his baby, but he decided to turn it from a for-profit for to a non-profit. So what a lot of people don't know is we spend a lot of time not just educating the public, and we have friends like Rick, where are you, Rick? Friends like Rick help us for, with their experience, and we do adult programs, but we also focus a lot on children programs. We also do things like providing access to children with autism and adults with learning disabilities. We shut down the museum virtually to the public and bring people into the museum. We turn down the lights and it's a sight to behold. For me, it's very, not only humbling, but it's emotional. When I talk to a little boy with autism or a little girl that has autism and they want to meet a spy, something, by the way, I'm not comfortable still with telling people, but when I see them shake with excitement, and my kids kind of eye roll, Dad, you weren't that big in our household, but only tongue-in-cheek, they say that, I think, but uh, it's pretty extraordinary. We also have, not only uh, do we have eight floors, a rooftop that has a panoramic view. You can see the NSC, the Eisenhower building. You can also see on the other side of the building, the waterfront. No space has that in DC with a rooftop. Below that's the seventh floor. That's where we have the ability to have event space that's world-class. Right now, it is the hottest space, I'm proud to say, in DC. We do everything from weddings to bar mitzvahs. There weren't a lot of people that did weddings at our old space, just for the record. Um, and anyone who's been there can appreciate that. But the heart of our new building, I will tell you, is not just the exhibition space that I want to take a few minutes to talk about, but it's, it's really our classroom spaces, which aren't terribly exciting. It's in the belly of the building, but that's where kids come, and they go into classrooms that are approved and executed by uh, certified educators linked to whatever public school system they're in. And plus, some schools charter, I think charter one schools that don't normally have the funding to, to get a tour at the Spy Museum. We work with those schools that, so they absolutely get the access to Spy Museum. So that's a little bit about uh, about the physical space, and I'll dive in in a second and talk about the exhibitions. But first, I want to tell a story about my first day. If you don't believe what I've told you so far, I want to frame it for you. Um, but before I do that, one other story that I wasn't prepared to tell, but I got to share. It's kind of funny. You know that picture that's outside that advertises this event? Uh, 
So if you take a real close look at that picture, I'm sort of making a funny face. So let me frame it for you. I had just started the job, and they said, we're doing a photo shoot of you. I said, photo shoot. What does that mean? Well, we're going to take about 100 pictures, and we're going to run an ad, in the, or not an ad, we're going to do a little story about you and the Washingtonian. All this was very new to me, so I said, okay, this is my new role, got it, I'll put on a conservative necktie, a white shirt, a dark suit, and I will just speak from the heart. So we went off to this photo shoot and interview, and most of my facial expressions were very neutral. As a case officer, as an intelligence officer, you don't give away a lot, you try not to, so that's a learned behavior. Plus, by nature, I think I, I try to display some humility. So I was very neutral uh, in my expression. And finally, the guy said to me, listen, I really want you to put on a fedora. And I made that face. And then he took the picture. And of the 100 pictures, the one he decided to put was that one, right? Uh, but after we kind of laughed, I said, I'm not wearing a fedora, sorry. That's my red line, right? I just you know, couldn't surpass that, that point in time. So. The first day at the Spy Museum, after leaving the administration, Donna and I, my wife and I, had a vacation. To be candid, it wasn't near enough because we had worked seven days a week. I worked maybe 12 to 15 hours some days. My team was expected not to work the hours I worked, and I made it very clear that this is my last opportunity to serve the nation. So, you know. I was going to uh, clearly execute that with, uh, with the panache that I needed to do in my last job. So my first day at the Spy Museum, after a brief vacation, I rolled in and I was extremely, extremely uncomfortable and unsteady and nerved, very nervous, mostly on the inside, right? Again, no one's going to know that uh, I'm uptight and I'm not going to display that. But as I rolled in, I looked to my right as I physically was moving to my office that my predecessor as a legendary CIA officer had vacated, Mr. Peter Ernest. And he's still on our board, by the way, legendary. But Peter was gone, and I was walking to my office. And out of my peripheral vision, there was a classroom. And I popped into the classroom, and there were kids. They were eight years old, and they were learning about the American Revolution. But our teacher was talking about secret writing, not too far off the mark of what I learned when I went through the basic training, the same training that a CIA officer goes to many, many years before, learning about secret writing because it was employed during the American Revolution. But the light the light went on for me because as I listened and watched these children be animated by, by the teachings and the way our, our staff projected themselves, the kids were thrilled. They thought they were learning about espionage, but what they were really learning about was the American Revolution in an approved curriculum with their teaching staff. And then I realized we are an education facility, to be sure, and our job is to produce lifelong learners. I was so excited, I left the room, went down to my office, and 
called a former colleague from the CIA, and he said he hadn't heard that much excitement in my voice for years. This is a guy that just left as a senior executive at CIA, a general officer, and he was so excited as I shared with him the story. So that was my first day. Since then, I've been there for two years, and now you see a magnificent building over in Longfont Plaza. So let me just share with you very quickly just kind of a brief overview of what the SPY is. Spy Museum projects in our exhibit space because I want all of you to come and visit us at the Spy Museum. So the two floors of exhibit space start with the fifth floor. That's how you spy. If there's a theme, it's the tactics, the techniques, and the tradecraft of espionage. And that means the tools as well, the things that all of you have seen in the movies, what a concealment device looks like, what a a fake rock looks like when you open it up that's designed in a lab so you can leave it in some park somewhere in the world to have a indirect meeting with the source that you're running. All of these things are laid out in the museum. On the fifth floor, principally, is where we get to the how you spy. The floor below that is the fifth floor. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. The fifth floor, then the fourth floor. When you go to the fourth floor, it's why we spy. And that's where we tackle some incredibly challenging subjects. And that's why we spy. We get to the moral, the ethical decisions that intelligence officers have to make. And that all happens on the, on the, um, on the fourth floor, as I said. Um, let me dive a little deeper and tell you how we educate the public by contextualizing history through our artifacts. Let's take, for an example, a subject that might be interesting to everybody here. Let's talk about Russian hacking. And indeed, the Russians are hacking. They are involved with electoral interference. The U.S. intelligence community has judged it so. In 2016, it began to start. So what does that have to do with the Spy Museum? Well, again, consider hacking for a moment. Now consider that hacking is an element that has been a part of Russian history as far back as Lenin. The idea of active measures, covert action, using intelligence services as an extension of the body politic, right? You know the stories of the KGB, the NKVD before them, today's Russian FSB. You pick the acronym, the bottom line is the Russians are continuing what they've done for decades and decades. It's known euphemistically as active measures. Now consider the artifacts that we have. We have, and this is a little macabre, and it's a little incongruous mentioning it in a church, right? But we have the ice axe that was used as a tool of assassination by the Russians, the ice axe that killed Trotsky in 1940. We have the actual ice axe. It's quite impressive, really. We have a mock-up of the umbrella that poked into a dissident on a bridge in London. He felt a sharp pain, Markov, and it was a Bulgarian that poked that pen, that umbrella, rather, uh, in a pin-sized hole in his leg. He felt it, but it, and he saw a man. That's all he was able to describe that night as Markov, the dissident, slowly died excruciatingly from ricin poison, another tool of assassination. 
And we connect that to last year, Scripple, you know the story, part of the sp spy trade, right? Scripple was poisoned in England. By whom? Russian intelligence services. My German friends just came to visit me. I love working with the German intelligence services. And I was reminded that recently a Chechen was poisoned. And uh, it is again believed to be the Russians. So they're up to their old tricks again. And of course we have a cyber gallery where we talk more deliberately about updating our museum. We have a cyber infinity room where we talk about our vulnerabilities. Everything from Iran to, to Russia. And again, that's a story yet to be finished. One other personal story I want to share just to kind of frame the problems we're dealing with. The first visitor, you might be starting to get the picture, poor Donna, she's been drugged along this career for 34 years. And I said one day, Donna, the first guest in our new apartment in Virginia Beach is going to be Sergei Tretyakov. He's a defector and a former KGB officer. Our FBI friends are going to pop by and we're going to connect with Sergei, who Donna had met, met once before. And we were in my study and I was very much concerned at the time on things in Afghanistan. Sergei was bigger than life. And to be candid, on the inside there was a little intimidation because I thought this guy might be able to run circles around me. I don't know, but he, he fit the part right out of central casting, bigger than like life, aggressive, opinionated, but he knew how to build a relationship as well. And he's in my apartment or our condo in Virginia Beach. And I said, Sergei, I need some help on Afghanistan. I laid out just what kind of advice I needed. And he shook his head and he said, Chris, forget about Afghanistan. You've lost in Afghanistan. Focus on the Russians. And I was mildly dismissive on that point, but I was polite. He was a guest in my condo. We had a great meal. This was 2009. As a postscript, one month after that, Sergei choked to death. Apparently, eating a meal, he choked to death on a piece of food. Our friends in the FBI had to be certain, so they went to the responsible authorities to make sure the appropriate medical examination took place. And it turned out that Sergei did die of natural causes. But we should all pause. In 2009, the FBI just wasn't so sure. Right? They just weren't certain, and they were worried about Russians then. Now flash forward to 2020, and where are we? Not only are Russians assassinating people with the artifacts in the museum that contextualize current history, but so aren't other countries. And that's covert action. We also talk that, about that in the spy museum. So I will wrap up in a few minutes and allow for questions, any questions you might have. Does that work for you, sure. Clark? So let me just give you a really quick overview of the museum in a little more detail. So we have a gallery on stealing secrets, which warms my heart, because that's the business of a case officer to build a relationship, to spot, assess, and recruit. It's nothing like James Bond, but we have real spies sharing their stories. Make. Uh, and that's all about stealing the secrets. In my case, it was more about recruiting
terrorists that had access to terrorist networks so we could prevent attacks against the United States or our interests overseas. We have the artifacts and kiosks, real intelligence officers, real sources talking about their stories with actual artifacts. And then we move into making sense of secrets, which I love because the old spy museum really didn't talk <coughs> about analytical tradecraft, right? Cognitive bias. And kids love that as well as adults. I will reveal to you, if you do some of our amazing interactives, one of 75, you might not pass the test, because I didn't pass the test. And I realized I had cognitive bias. I'm a horrible spy, and I'm never doing it again, right? I don't want to embarrass myself. But this is more about analytical tradecraft. What biases do you have as an analyst? Do you have some, something that inhibits you from getting at the truth? These are natural, absolutely unequivocal, real-world problems. And what kids get out of it is, might be a little bit different from adults, but they start learning critical thinking skills. One thing we are not is we are not a school for spies. In fact, I want to make the point that we are not beholden to anybody in the intelligence community. We're not beholden to the international uh, community. We're not beholden to the US government. We take no money from anyone. We're independent. So to be clear, I get beat up by everybody equally as the executive director of the Spy Museum because you never make everybody happy in a museum when you're trying to animate it, people uh, get people's minds going, think critically and walk away, in some cases with context, but at the same time more questions. It's just a point of departure for more learning. And then, as I said, I won't belabor the point, we talk about covert action as well. That's where we have real spies, real stories. If you want to hear a real story about me handling a Taliban walk-in that had a volunteer, if you will, that had actionable intelligence that U.S. Marines were going to be attacked. I ran him for about a week or two, meaning I worked with him to determine whether he was telling the truth. And in the end, we rolled up an explosive network that was going to kill U.S. Marines in a small valley called Sarobi. Actually, not so small. And I'm very proud of that. I tell a few minutes story and a real spy, real story in our covert action gallery. Uh, it's quite rewarding because my family gets a chance to see the movie and my wife said to me, not in these words exactly, but I couldn't believe how dumb you were for doing that <laughs> because I did clearly push the envelope. It worked out good, but I wasn't sure that the outcome was going to be as positive as it was. But it really gets to the heart of what intelligence officers do, not just in the United States, I mean overseas, a U.S. intelligence officer, but universally what intelligence officers have to do. And then we get into spying that shapes history, and that's on the fourth floor that I said gets into uh, the why you spy. And that's the, uh, the moral dimensions, but also the Pearl Harbors, the 9-11. It also, we have an artifact from George Washington that I want you to go see, a letter signed by him that gets to the very heart of the beginning of US intelligence dabbling, if you will, starting in the American Revolution. That's a quick overview of the Spy Museum. I want to pause for any questions, any stories you want me to tell, anything that you want to ask about working policy at the White House, because I, I should make the point, 
as a non-political appointee, as somebody that was responsible for counterterrorism. My job was to keep everybody in this room safe from a 9-11. We did that seven days a week, 24-7. And my team was from the U.S. intelligence community. And uh, they were dedicated to the mission. You don't know their names. You don't know their, their faces. And uh, that's what we did. And I was a policymaker. The beauty of that gift was I was now on the receiving end of the intelligence. The presidential daily brief that only goes to a few people went to me. And I had an opportunity to see intelligence full circle because I knew the people that were collecting the intelligence. I knew what it took to deliver the product to me. And I knew the questions to ask those analysts. And it was an extraordinary gift that I had. And uh, I, I, never, I never squandered that, which is why, again, going full circle, it's amazing for us to be in this neighborhood again. And we'll walk home like we, we used to, uh, to remind ourselves what it was like to work at the White House. So what questions do you have? You want to mention spy talks, please? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. So I, I have a couple, I have some materials here. We are, as I said, we're a non-profit, but I, I want you to know how you could support SPY, the programs I mentioned. And I want you to know that every month, every, they'll, on a Thursday, once a month, I will now, in our theater, with another professional from national security, maybe somebody on our board, next month, it's, or I'm sorry, next week it's going to be Mel Gamble, who is an African-American case officer, meaning he ran agents at CIA, and he's allowed to say that now, went to the highest uh, levels of the CIA, ran our Africa division, extraordinary individual, he and I, will take questions from the public on current events. That's how we educate the public, on anything you want to ask about what you see in the headlines, and to the extent we can, we'll talk about everything from the Soleimani attack, Iran policy, to Hezbollah, to Syria, to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or good old-fashioned spy stories that you're reading about. We'll do that once a month for an hour. It costs nothing, and it's our opportunity to give back to the community. It's really a local program. We're hoping we draw people in the neighborhoods during their lunch hour. So please, uh, there's a flyer here. I'd love to see you in the audience next week and every Thursday for the rest of my life, I hope. <laughs> Sir. Yeah, I was just wondering about the uh, hacking capabilities of the United States versus, say, for instance, uh, China, Russia, or uh, or Iran. I mean, how 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 do our hack, hacking capabilities compare to these other countries that uh, are not exactly friendly towards us? Just repeat that for me. Yeah. So the question was about the capabilities of the Iranians, the Chinese, some of our our competition out there. What are our capabilities like compared? to them. And I would say we're better or equal to the Russians and the Chinese and certainly the Iranians because they're not as good as the Chinese and the Russians. I will say with the caveat that I didn't work cyber issues to a great extent, but my boss, I had two bosses, three. I had the Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bossert, who handled cyber as well as counterterrorism in all issues Homeland Security, and General McMaster, Mike Flynn, for about a month. And, and uh, um, since my boss were, 
work cyber issues, I certainly was privy to some of what we were doing. What I was most concerned with, which you didn't mention, and understandably, was non-state actors, their capabilities to hack. And the problem with the world now is there's a democratization of spy tools, meaning what used to be in the reserve of Russia, China, to a lesser extent Iran, and the United States, is now the tools are now available to non-state actors. So what I was concerned about is Al-Qaeda, ISIS, developing people and skills to become hackers on a national level scale, right? That's what I focused on. But I, I would let you know that, thankfully, one of the few things that I haven't read in the papers about extensively is our capabilities. It's, those are closely held secrets. I do worry about our infrastructure being vulnerable to disruptions. Thank you for the question. Yeah, Sir? I have a question. The China, um, maybe think about it. Is there a line or where's the line between political and military espionage or hacking and, say, economic hacking or espionage? Because I know China is involved, and I assume both, and I don't know whether there is a line or how that works. So I'll try to end. The question is commercial espionage. What are the lines for collection? I will tell you, historically, the United States hasn't been involved with, with commercial collection espionage like the Chinese do whole scale. It's all about stealing our secrets so they can reverse engineer things. Not just the Chinese, but also the Russians. All of their high technologies, everything from drones to their high-speed aircraft come from Lockheed Martin and, other, and other, other companies. They steal trade secrets. There was just a case, just in the last 30 days since the new year, where a Chinese, not an intelligence officer, not an agent in a classic sense, but he stole some, some um, research on biomedical issues. And Secretary, I'm sorry, FBI Director, Christopher Ray said, this is the kind of espionage we're going to de deal with. Now, you might say, why aren't we evening the playing fields? Here's why. Imagine, if you will, if a guy like me was overseas and I had access to trade secrets and I could recruit somebody to steal trade secrets on some country's next generation technology in the commercial realm. The problem is, who do you give some of the competitive edge information to outside of the government. Which company do we give the intelligence to to give those companies an edge? It's a problem with how we disseminate that intelligence. We wouldn't unfairly give it to Boeing and not some mom and pop company that needs the same secrets. So we're very different. Uh, what we do do as a nation is collect counterintelligence, meaning absolutely. So FBI has a robust program to work with companies to let them know just how vulnerable they are. Absolutely. And the, the same thing with social media exploitation, and this gets back to cyber. The FBI will go to those companies. Now I argue, and this is a separate discussion, that we need to do that more, more deliberately going forward. Social media is a double-edged game, too, because it's a lot easier. Now, as a case officer, as an intelligence officer, I can learn everything about everybody virtually using the Internet, right? Using LinkedIn, using Facebook. And if I can't learn anything about you, then you are automatically suspect, 
right? So um, that's a challenge. So what is my footprint going forward? I am very fortunate that I am no longer in the business because I might be outpaced technologically because I only joined LinkedIn the day I started at the Spy Museum. Very uncomfortable. Thanks for the question. Yes, ma'am. How, how concerned should I be that Iran could infiltrate um, the U.S. power grid or something like that? I, my worst fears that we'd be without power for like 45 days. Um, news outlets right. and talk about this but they don't go into detail about what the ramifications would be. That's an excellent question about our vulnerabilities, about the power grid, about losing power. As I said, we are vulnerable and Homeland Security works deliberately, and so doesn't the National Security Council right across the street on those issues. I wouldn't lose sleep over it, but it is a concern, and it's going to happen. There will likely be some kind of cyber Pearl Harbor someday, somewhere. What we'll do, though, the United States, with our international partners, will try to mitigate those threats. But the government is acutely aware of the vulnerabilities the day people go to check their bank accounts and there's no money there, the day the water doesn't get turned on. So those are all vulnerabilities, but you should not lose sleep. It's just the nature of the world we're in. We are vulnerable. We're going to also have to learn to be resilient. And the government is responsible for that, but so isn't the private sector. And back to the question that was asked, or maybe I didn't make the point strong enough, but the private sector is working very closely with the U.S. government as our state authorities. Thank you for the question. Yes, sir. At the museum, is there a representation of the relationship between Inquitel and the CIA? Some of our board members have relationships with Inquitel, but I don't think, I think one spot we might make a connection, but uh, but it's certainly not a big part of the uh, exhibition. Well, just mention what Incutel is. For yeah, Incutel is sort of a, a private-public relationship with the CIA and business and technology. Is that about right? Okay. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Sir. First of all, thank you for your service. Oh, uh, thank you. Um, one, what are the primary sources for the artifacts in the Aswan uh, Museum? And the second part is, are there artifacts that are out there that you'd like to add to the collection, like ice axe or other things? Yeah. So there is the question was where are our artifacts, what artifacts are on our, our wish list, right? And where do you go the primary sources for our artifacts? Yeah, oh excellent, got it. Sources of where we get them. So all we get our so the ice axe is like a a movie could be done on how the ice axe was required by our intrepid H. Keith Melton. You can look him up. You can. We tell the story at the Spy Museum. He's on the board. He's the one that encouraged Chris Costa to apply, so I'm grateful to him. Keith tracked artifacts across the globe to include that ice axe. He literally received the ice axe on a bridge in Mexico after he commissioned somebody to do blood bladder analysis of blood that's left on the ice axe. That was acquired by good old-fashioned tradecraft research and some risk. Other 
Other artifacts are donated from people in the intelligence community and our staff. People want to help this spy museum. They love it. And we have over 7,000 artifacts. What we don't generally take is papers. We're not an archive. And we're limited by space, but we'll always look at a real piece of artifact. And I think you can go to our website and see some of the artifacts we have. And then we build a story about those artifacts. Because in the end, we are storytellers now and we tell it through the artifacts. And the second part of your question was the wish list. The wish list. So that is endless, and I did allude to it. Um, Keith will chase down, I'll give you a funny vignette. John Walker, infamous spy, lived in Virginia Beach. We know the house he lived. When I was working with SEALs in Virginia Beach, Keith called me and he said, I have been trying to get the curtains from John Walker's house. He, it's no longer in the family, but the curtains are still there. I knocked on the door, they threw me out, uh, off the property. Will you go back and get the curtains? I said, no, I'm not going back there, Keith, but thanks. Now that I work for him, I'm waiting for him to remember that I'm at the spy museum. But there is no artifact that Keith won't try to chase down. He is that passionate about artifacts. Now, curtains might not seem like a lot, but when you think those curtains were in Walker's house, right? That curtain was in the house while he was plotting, really the undermining, greedily working with Russians. And by the way, you'll see some other artifacts on John Walker in the Spy Museum. And we were so vulnerable. Had we gone to war in the late 60s, early 70s with Russia, they would have known our submarine secrets, evidently because of what Walker gave the Russians. In other words, we were extremely vulnerable if we went to general war during the Cold War because of a guy like John Walker who served in the Navy then betrayed his nation. He's in prison for the rest of his life, but we have his artifacts. Sarah and then Frank. Sarah. Where is Sarah? Did you have a question? Oh, actually, I, 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 did, I didn't raise my hand, but, oh. but you know, I, I didn't see that. <laughs> I, 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 So all the, the question is, what about Russian hacking now? Yeah, so the, the that's right for 2020, from 16 through 20. The bottom line is there's some evidence. This is all publicly available. There's some evidence that the Russians are using multiple cutouts, so they're a little more, a little more uh, distant from the actual hacking itself. So the bottom line is. Russia is going to continue to exploit our vulnerabilities. And our greatest vulnerability as a nation is the fact that despite the polarization across the nation, I don't want to sound Pollyanna, but I really, really believe this. Although we're polarized, our greatest vulnerability is our greatest strength. And that is we're a democracy, we're a free people. So we're always gonna be vulnerable to disruptions. If it's not the Russians, it's gonna be somebody else. It's not just the Russians. So they're continuing to answer your question directly, but it's a little more um, cut out 
from the original sources, the people that are doing it. But it's going to continue to happen. The Russians are going to take advantage of everything you see in the news, to include the killing of Soleimani, to include our policy in Syria. They're going to continue to undermine what, what it is we do. But we should all be wary that one of our greatest vulnerabilities is our electoral system, right? To sow, sow disinformation and to make us lack confidence in our institutions. And the Russians are doing that. But so aren't the Iranians to a lesser extent, and so won't the Chinese. And I mentioned non-state actors, right? Just people that are malicious and want to hurt the United States. And there are plenty of those people. Frank? Uh, following up on Bud's question about the artifacts, uh, in this country and abroad, there are hundreds, about thousands of military uh, museums. And I know from personal experience, there's both formal and informal networks where they keep each other apprised of artifacts that they're willing to trade, exchange, sell. Uh, what's the universe of museums like your museums in this country, both public and private and, and overseas? Linked to the spy museum specifically? Great question. So there's a museum up in New York, I think it's called Spyscape, or, and uh, it has nothing to do with the International Spy Museum. There might be small museums in the country that I'm not even aware of that, that do small little exhibits on espionage and undercover operations like in Las Vegas that are similar, but there is no museum like the International Spy Museum in the world that's open to the public. There, there's a spy museum in Berlin now. We have relationships with all of those museums, but similarly, we have relationships with government, uh, government museums like the CIA's museum, National Security Agency's museum. Bob Ashley, director of, of DIA, is a great, great American three-star former peer. He just created a small museum, and we have relationships with everyone in this space. Um, there's going to be a museum that opens up, I think it's Offices of Strategic Services and Special Operations Museum out in Loudoun County. It's going to be very, very different from the Spy Museum. That's going to pay homage, I think, to, uh, and I don't mind sharing that, it's going to pay homage to the Office of Strategic Services, but they will likely never have the kinds of artifacts that we have as a, a serious museum that's really um, been at it for 17 years. But we certainly want people in the space to be successful. Um, I will also tell you I've been to museums in Albania, for example, that we want to start a relationship with down the line. The, the, the House of Leaves, where people literally were tortured, it's actually now a museum. Um, it's powerful to see how they tell their stories, even though it's small and Albania doesn't have a big budget. But here's what I found when I was there that was so heartwarming to me and so um, optimistic. The Albanians, one, they have come to grips with their negative past, and they tell the stories there in a much smaller level, smaller scope, the same way that we do. So there's a universal nature of telling stories and it's, it's marvelous to see. Because I knew nothing about museums until that day I walked into the Spy Museum. We've got time for one last question, if it's short, and uh, if the answer's short. Uh, Rick? Uh, Chris, you mentioned the word polarization. This is sort of drawing on your background, because you've been a recruiter, a collector, 
from those two things, I think, an analyst as well, and then you ended up on the policy-making side. So what do you, how do people, what's your assessment of people in the intelligence community now? Are, how is, what's the morale like? And, you know, we hear a lot of stuff about the dark state and yep. the deep state. Right. I was part of the dark state, I guess, and you were. Um, what's, what's your sense, and especially as a former policymaker, yeah. how do you feel when stuff that you know is 99% true, but it's being rejected for who knows what reason? Rick, thanks for the question. I'll be brief, but I will tell you, I'll answer the question the way I answered it to my son, who's an FBI agent. And he's like, Dad, you know, he's already been in two shootings, and he's an FBI agent, an intrepid young agent. And sometimes intelligence organizations get beat up, and FBI is part of that community. And Paul is emblematic of all of the other people that I know out there. They feel bad when their agency's under attack by anyone. They feel bad but they do their job day in and day out. And they know these things pass. And my advice to my son was just do your job. My advice I practiced while I was over here, and that was be informed by the intelligence, be a professional, be prepared to take heat rounds, in quotes, that's what we called it in the military, right? Be prepared to stand stand by what it is you recommend, and that's the best we can do. That is our ethos. So my son, when I was at the NSC, all of my people and all of the professionals are gonna continue doing their job regardless, day in and day out. It's up to others, really, to offer their perspectives publicly, but it certainly won't come from me, other than to say, continue to do their job, your job professionals, I certainly know I followed that advice and I know there are plenty of people like my son Paul that day in and day out are going to continue doing their job for all the right reasons. Thanks for that question, Rick. Thank you very Everyone, much. Everyone, please join me. Please stick around for a minute. Yeah,